we have electric engines running without any overhaul and no service encroaching on 14,000 hours right now. People would wow. shake their head in disbelief if you said, I ran a turbine for 14,000 hours with no maintenance, hot section, cold section, or anything. So we've had more than 90 missions with nearly 1,000 flights, 100% dispatch availability, because there's not a lot to go wrong. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. Small electric aircraft have been in development for some time now, but it looks like the first customer might well be the United States Air Force. We'll talk with a pioneer in the field, Kyle Clark, who is the founder and leader of Beta Technologies, whose Alia electric airplane just concluded testing with AFWorks and is in line for procurement, plus this week's headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE. From America's first jet engine to the revolutionary three-stream adaptive cycle engine, GE Aerospace has been delivering firsts for military propulsion for more than 100 years. Learn about the latest innovation at geaerospace.com slash XA100. And the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications is also brought to you by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. JJ, what's in the news this week on All Wings Considered? Vago, the Turkish government finally permitted Sweden to join NATO, and mirabile dictu, suddenly there's going to be 40 F-16s headed their way. But where there's <laughs> Turkey, there's also Greece. Greece is getting 40 F-35s and a couple of C-130Hs just as a sweetener. Ukraine has begun receiving the Boeing Saab ground-launched small-diameter bomb, a weapon even the United States doesn't have yet. Think an airdropped SDB with a rocket booster on it that takes the range out to 90 miles. And although this happened in November, General Atomics has just revealed the first flight test of its new advanced air-launched effects UAV. Yes, that's its name. They revealed a photo of the new drone being dropped by one of their Avenger UAVs, making it a drone-dropping drone. Vago? <laughs> JJ, that was a nice uh, Latin uh, lesson. And for the people in the audience who had absolutely no idea what that was, go ahead. Wonder of wonders, essentially. And JJ, unfortunately, we're going to keep the chit-chat short and the analysis even shorter to non-existent to make sure that we reserve as much time as possible for our next guest, who we are sure is going to be both making news as well as give us some absolutely valuable and vital insights into electric aviation. And it is my absolute honor to welcome to the program today, Kyle Clark of Beta Technologies, a truly unique electric aircraft company in Vermont. JJ and I have seen Kyle the last couple of years at the Bank of America's Defense and Aerospace Conference that our friend uh, and business roundtable icon, Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein, hosts each year in New York City that we are partnered on and have been partnered on since the beginning of that conference in 2008. Kyle, welcome to the Air Power Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here, Vago and JJ. We're going to get to the military justification for electric power as well as the AFWorks demonstration. Congratulations uh, on a job well done on that. But first, tell the audience a little bit about Beta and what makes you guys very different from others in this space without giving you too much of an opportunity to be totally self-serving here. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, so, so Beta Technologies, we're an aerospace company focused on the electrification of aerospace we started as a company consulting, actually, for other companies integrating batteries, motors, inverters, and flight controls into, I would call them, legacy designs. We learned quite a bit 
sitting in that role, consulting for people, and all the while in the back of our minds, or my mind specifically, was developing our own aircraft. And that's something that goes back about 20 uh, years to my time at, at Harvard, studying a hybrid aircraft that I called Beta Air. And as those ideas merged with the current state of technology, it became clear to us in about 2017 that we should develop our own aircraft. And we did that um, with the support of Martin Rothblatt, who's the founder of Sirius XM Radio and uh, United Therapeutics and a number of other interesting, interesting companies. And what makes us different is that our roots are in power electronics, controls, and batteries. Uh, all of my former companies were focused on that. We did things like electrifying the Patriot missile system, uh, electrifying particular shipboard uh, applications, and high reliability power electronics for grid-tied applications. And it really taught me what was required to make electrification displace uh, really reliable compression and turbine diesel engines. And that was kind of our entry point into this market. And I think what makes us different to answer your second question is that we were looking at it from a very engineering-centric vantage point. We recognize that not only do we have to match the existing performance, but we have to exceed the existing performance of turbine engines, and we have to grossly exceed the reliability in order to overcome the significant investment necessary to bring any aerospace product to market. If you want me to dive into some of the technical nuances of that, I'm happy to, but conceptually, it's an engineering-centric business that's focused on power electronics, motors, and batteries that has incorporated that into our first product, which is a 7,000-pound vertical takeoff and landing aircraft we call Aaliyah. Well, this is an air power audience. The folks who listen to this podcast are knowledgeable about military applications. Most of what we've heard about electric aircraft has been focused on short-range air taxis. That's not what you're building. Can you walk us through Aaliyah's capabilities and more particularly about the technology trajectory you're on for the future? Yeah, it's a great point. Our design point, all aircraft, you know, they, they have not a big sense of humor of being off-point designs. So our design point was guided by organ and tissue delivery missions. And that required a long range and vertical at both ends, specifically going hospital to hospital. The minimum viable range is about 200 nautical miles, which is about five times the minimum viable range for an air taxi. So that informs everything about the design from the configuration the propellers, the wings, the tails, to the size of the aircraft, to where you prioritize efficiency of the aircraft to achieve that range versus things like acoustics and passenger comforts and other things. So when we designed this aircraft for organ and tissue, it turned out that it was very applicable to what people in the military affectionately call the milk run, which is relatively short range, sub two to 500 mile missions of delivering product to bases, troops, water, medicine, bullets over the hill. And that was kind of the initial entry point to discussions with the military. It's a aircraft that allows logistics with a minimal logistics tail, i.e. fuel and maintenance, while providing those services um, with some tangential benefits in noise, acoustic signature, thermal signature, and a, a really low operational training requirement for troops. And as those conversations emerged, a vision for demonstrations evolved. And that's where we're at now. 
Let me pull uh, a little bit more on the string, right? I mean, you talked about sort of broadly the benefits, Kyle, of having these electric aircraft on a battlefield. Obviously, there were the AFWorks exercises at Eglin where you guys were doing a little bit of work. But tell the audience, the air power audience, how these electric aircraft would fit in to operations and why actually an electric-powered aircraft is an advantage. Walk us through what the rationale for this is and, and how it actually scratches a unique itch and actually reduces some of your maintenance and other burdens, including your fuel load. So you hit on, I think, one of the big positive surprises of the last three months of running these missions with the Fort 13th down at Duke and now, now around Georgia in the southeast. But backing up for one second, fundamentally, it's a, a logistics support aircraft, whether it's for the Army, the Marines in a close logistics, contested logistics environment, or for the Air Force in kind of a base support type mission. It's moving things super reliable from point A to point B, low time in transit, and exceptionally low infrastructure, you know, roads, landing pads, the fact it takes off and lands vertically is an obvious statement to how minimal the infrastructure needs to be. The electrification is a fascinating thing. Electricity is like the most flexible fuel you can imagine in the fact that you can generate it from renewable sources. You can generate it from diesel, from gas. You can connect to a local electric grid. And we've demonstrated that with mobile chargers and stationary chargers, and they can connect to any grid in the world, whether it's 50 hertz, 60 hertz, 480, 380, 208. And we've, we've shown with our recent demonstrations that you can really land anywhere. You can carry your own charger. It's not super fast. It's about 40 kilowatts. And you can plug it into a regular old GPU plug in a hangar and charge up the aircraft. Or you can show up with an aircraft that actually has a diesel engine in it, and it pops out of the aircraft and charges the aircraft itself and then allows the aircraft to do electric missions. So it's a super flexible fuel. But the last thing that you said, which was the maintenance and the logistics tail required. So we have electric engines running without any overhaul and no service encroaching on 14,000 hours right now. People would wow. shake their head in disbelief if you said, I ran a turbine for 14,000 hours with no maintenance, hot section, cold section or anything. And we can't even measure degradation on the electric motors. They're running between 60 and 100 degrees centigrade, no caustic gases, and there's an electromagnetic field that goes between the gap of the rotating and the stationary components. There's really nothing to wear out. So, so the heavy maintenance, the engine stuff, there's no thrust vectoring, there's no variable pitch propellers, has actually yielded, I think, the most fascinating statistic of the last three months of operation with the Air Force, which is 100% dispatch availability. So we've had more than 90 missions with nearly a thousand flights, a hundred percent dispatch availability because there's not a lot to go wrong. And that's the thing that I would say is the most critical parameter when it comes to just reliable logistics. And, and that's the maintenance and, and tail that it's required. We've done it with like a team of three to five to eight on site, depending on the mission, which is nothing for a brand new aircraft. And getting selected by AFWorks to be included in their assessment of electric aircraft capabilities wasn't the first time you've been drafted by Washington. But the Aaliyah was down. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> well played. Well played, Gertler. 
By the way, for anybody who doesn't know, you're looking not only at a person who is a uh, longtime innovator, founded Beta Technologies, distinguished graduate from Harvard University uh, with an engineering degree, and was drafted by one of America's finest hockey clubs, the Washington Capitals. <laughs> Continue. Well, you were down there, as you say, for a couple of months. You set a bunch of records in the way. But what paces were you run through? What kinds of missions and capabilities were you able to demonstrate? And frankly, what did you learn during those three months? I think some of the highlights are this. We were asked to go from uh, Duke Field, which was our primary base, into a variety of different kind of supported and unsupported fields. So out and back missions. Do you need charging at the place that you're going to pick something up? So we'd fly 100 miles, pick something up, come back. Those were relatively simple missions. One of my favorites we did Kazavac, we moved MREs, we did transfers from Black Hawk helicopters into our airplane, uh, showed that the dispatch time was really, really short. I mean, electric aircraft, you flip a switch and you're rolling. There is no spool up time, heat up, there's no turbine shutdown time. So those types of things are neat. But the one that really was cool for me was they said, what if we want to use this as a training aircraft? Why don't you all go out and see how many takeoff and landings you can do, this is conventional takeoff and landings, um, in a day. And the team went out and did 61 takeoff and landings, which is a lot for any airplane. And this taxes the brakes, the wheels, obviously the motors, the thermal stability, and the reliability of the aircraft. And then they said, okay, why don't you go out and do it tomorrow again? And they went out and did it again. And it showed that the aircraft was not only available, but it was capable. And for a pilot to enter into their logbook after spending $30 on electricity, 120 landings is inconceivable in any airplane right now. And so that was a training mission exercise. You had the Kazovac, you had the logistics support. And then of course, there was all of the handling qualities, flying qualities, evaluations, data, telemetry, access to the aircraft and maintenance that were tangential learnings, JJ, to the overall program. But I think people have found surprising successes in non-obvious places, such as that training opportunity and the, the low, low maintenance and high dispatch rate. And following on that, there's been talk of actually moving into procurement. Can you tell us where that stands? Yeah, there's been talk right along with a lot of different ideas. And, and I think that Agility Prime, the AFWRC, is kind of the tip of the spear. Of course, the U.S. Air Force is the premier aerospace elicitor of development in the world. The Marines, the Army, and the Air Force have all followed with, with a variety of different things like RFIs and RFPs that have allowed us to see a path to procurement. I think just generally speaking, supporting the Marines with a close logistics, contested logistics support vehicle is in the works right now. It is something that will will be a series of demonstration flights through this year and next year, and then uh, spiral development, and then ultimately procurement for their force design 2030. And that, I hope, will be thousands of aircraft for kind of a, a light logistics aircraft that can operate between islands and operate, operate in austere environments with, without a whole lot of logistics tail. The Army is a fascinating opportunity because, um, in my opinion, and this is not the Army's opinion, it, hopefully it will be at some point, is that we're not replacing helicopters, Lakotas, Blackhawks. We're freeing them up to go and do the jobs they should be doing. And we're providing the milk run, the logistics, and we're actually replacing JLTVs and Humvees that are going over the road and suspect to 
IEDs and a massive amount of infrastructure demand to be moving things around areas with the vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. You don't need any of that stuff. We went through sensors and seekers evaluation and as expected, like it was an immeasurable thermal presence because there's three degrees centigrade of increase in air temperature across the entire aircraft. I mean, compared to a jet engine, it's invisible, right? It's quiet and it's startup and shutdown time is effectively zero. So you want to use that as a log logistics aircraft. It's significantly safer than over-the-road transport. The key unlock happens when you say the air can go autonomous before the ground. Making a JLTV autonomous when it's driving through a city street and there's kids playing soccer is a pretty hard task. But when you do that with an airplane, the variables are grossly reduced and it's already been proven to be totally viable right now technologically and operationally it syncs with the existing uh, MO. So we've got we've got a really clear path that not only replacing helicopters but actually replacing ground vehicles or their mission by moving product from point to point inexpensively, low maintenance scale, and safely. I think it's absolutely fascinating, Kyle, and the future vertical lift program that the Army is uh, developing, and Bell uh, is one of our sponsors uh, who won the future long-range assault aircraft, was to be able to do some of this stuff also by air in a more distributed fashion, as you know. Let me take you to the growth path, right? Every single thing you guys have done has been to optimize for efficiency. It's one of the most gorgeous wings patterned after an Arctic turn, which is nature's finest wing. You guys are looking at all composite, right? So you're not just taking a, a caravan, uh, and I'm not denigrating those who do, and just putting a battery pack and an electric motor on it. You guys are working every single element of this. Walk us through what the plan is that takes the ALEA, which is the current conventional takeoff and landing aircraft. It has some of the structure there in order to accommodate the uh, vertical takeoff elements. And talk to us also about the march of technology, because you're almost having exponential advantage in power, in storage, right? I mean, each thing you learn and then the overall technology develops for commercial industry is allowing you to do more every couple of years without really that much more effort, not minimizing anything. Walk us through the plan about where you are now, where you're going to be in a couple of years and how the technology helps you in that ramp. Yeah, it's like an entirely new paradigm in aviation, the latter part of that, which is the compounding technological innovation that we can immediately consume. And everybody's aware of the increasing energy density of batteries. And that is compounding. And we're measuring something eight to 10% per year uh, because there's been so much really good investment in both the chemical storage at the baseline level and the packaging at a higher level where the, the energy density of batteries and then thus battery cells is getting better and better at a, an amazing rate of 8 to 10% per year. That's the one that everybody knows and tracks. However, next to that, so we have four variables to, for performance in electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft or electric aircraft of any sort. It's that battery energy density. It's a power co conversion efficiency. It's a lift over drag ratio, which is the slipperiness of the aircraft and the structural weight fraction. How much should you leave for payload and batteries? All of those things actually trade linearly for the performance of the aircraft. And this gets back to the first part of your question, which is why is it not viable to put an electric motor and batteries on a Cessna caravan? And it is viable to put electric batteries and motors on a new design. And it comes down to the lift over drag ratio, structural weight fraction, 
an elegance of integration, which then drives both of those things to a better state. And by the numbers, um, a typical caravan, for example, it's leftover drag ratio. The drag portion of that will be about 30% cooling drag. The rest is it's just kind of an ugly airplane in the sense aerodynamically. It's a beautiful aircraft. I fly one, but an ugly from an aerodynamic sense because of the structure and the technology used to build it. So you get a liftover drag ratio of about eight on a good day of a caravan. Um, you get down to glide speed, it might be a little bit higher, but at operational speed, it's about eight. Our aircraft is measured at over 17. So for every unit of energy you put in, you go twice as far. And then you say, how do I take that precious energy that has a reduction in energy density over diesel fuel, of course, and convert that super efficiently? And this is the second technological innovation that a lot of people are overlooking. Going from silicon to wide band gap semiconductors like silicon carbide and gallium nitride and others, you convert that stored electrical energy into propulsion at a much higher rate, which has the effect of increasing your energy density or battery because you can use more of it. So we've seen this amazing reduction in switching losses and conduction losses of semiconductors of the power form over the last 10 years. And the cost reduction has been about a hundredfold to get access to right. those because the yield of this at the wafer level has gone way up. Plus Power America, which is a great program down in the Carolinas, elicited the first major fab in the US in years to happen in New York. And that's where we're getting our semiconductors from. So we have this compounding effect of efficiency of conversion, the battery energy density, the liftover drag by reducing all of the ancillary and excrescence drag as a function of putting turbines and planes and stuff. And then the last one is the material science for composite airframes for crashworthiness materials. Like it's actually quite expensive from a weight perspective to put in crush zones and other things. The material science and the modeling and analytical techniques allow us to have an exceptionally low structural weight fraction. You may have seen that we dropped batteries from 50 feet, for example, and they were totally benign. And people were like, first try, oh my God. However, analytically, it certainly wasn't our first try. We modeled the crap out of that thing. And, and it passed, of course. So you put all those things together and you say the liftover drag ratio of 17, energy density of 200 watt hours plus, a power conversion efficiency of 98%. And you say, damn, you can go and fly like 400 miles on, right. on an electric airplane. And then we went out and flew 386 miles. It turns out mother nature is remarkably consistent in her laws of physics, right? And, and so a lot of naysayers all of a sudden stopped looking at the incorporation of batteries and motors into caravans and said, wow, not only did the math work, but the physics worked and they proved it. And that's where we stepped ahead, I think, of the pack. And even the incumbents started coming to us and saying, okay, like that's a that's obvious, but unique way of thinking about it. The way you answered that question prompts me to ask something that's a little bit indelicate, right? There are a lot of people in this space, Kyle, and there is a lot of skepticism, right, about eVTOLs in particular, that it's a bubble. Uh, there are a lot of charlatans that are involved in this. You know, I was having dinner earlier uh, this week with a, a good uh, friend who's innovative. My friend Richard Abalafia was, was at that uh, dinner as well. And this innovator was complaining that the number of uh, BS artists in the space actually makes it potentially very perilous for real innovators, that the money runs out, the patience runs out by the customer, investors will get fatigued and be like, look, you know, all these guys are, you know, full of it. Do you have that fear, given that what you're doing is very different from what many others are doing? I mean, do you, do you have that concern? 
Yeah, I absolutely would have the exact same concern and we see it as well. And our strategy to combat that is actually to take a, a polar opposite approach. For example, our marketing strategy is to never buy an ad, is to never show a photo rendering or a CGI of something, never be fuzzy about what we're doing and only talk about things we've already done. If anybody says to us, I'd like you to describe the future, we say, you know what, actually come and fly with us, put you in the cockpit next to me, you'll see what we're building and you can observe test. That's the only thing we're willing to do. And it, it is exactly in response to what you outlined, um, which is there are folks out there who are proposing things that are technologically infeasible. We all understand momentum theory, push air down, airplane go up. However, it also follows a very strict rule of the delta, the square, the velocities of a particular density or mass of air. So you can't actually cheat that. Um, it's like gravity, right? It, it's, it's a thing that you have to respect. So what we do is we try to actually be the polar opposite of the marketing-driven company and be an engineering-centric company and let the engineering and the test results do the talking. That way you take the subject of ambiguity off the table. Is it possible? Are you, give, are you feeding me bullshit? Are you proposing something that can't be done? And it's worked really well because we're not the only ones with the insight to say there's, um, there's a risk here of a overinflation and false promises. Many customers recognize it well. Certainly educated folks in the military recognize it. We've all taken aerospace classes. We, we get the basics of it. And what's cool about it is if you just stick to the engineering, it turns out it closes. And economically, it allows us to focus all of our resources. I tell our marketing team all the time, which is three people, that the only thing you're allowed to do is film or photograph the real stuff that we're doing. You don't get to come up with schemes or anything. That's all you get to do. And that's the way we combat it. And I think we've earned the respect of the FAA, um, who's a very important customer and an audience of ours, the military and uh, commercial customers because of that strategy. But also pertaining to the customer's perception of you, Beta has an unusual culture. You help everyone on the staff who wants a pilot's license to get one as you yourself have one. You serve gourmet food. Everyone's an owner. It, it looks a lot more like a tech company than a traditional aerospace company. Is that making a difference in the product? And do you worry about how that looks to a customer used to dealing with a very different kind of company? Yeah, um, it's funny. I, I laugh because my I said that to my wife, serving, serving gourmet food, and she runs the food program here. She's like, it's not gourmet, it's healthy. It's called healthy food. It comes from farms and it doesn't be packed full of MSGs and all these other things. So anyway, um, we don't see it as gourmet food, but we also don't see people falling asleep at two o'clock in the afternoon because they ate out of a vending machine. They're eating healthy food that is uh, served by our team here. It costs us almost nothing, to be frank with you. And when you poll the employees as to why they work here, the first reason usually is flight lessons or food. And the second reason is maybe the people I get to work around in the environment and attach them to the mission. And way down the list, you hear money or bonuses or benefits, financial benefits. It is a strategy that's working. We have done arguably more than other people in the industry. And we have about half the people of our nearest competitor. And we've spent less than half the money. So I think that just like the engineering does the technical on the technical side, I think the culture here does the talking on what we're able to do with a small group of committed people and also the type of people we attract, JJ. Like, I want somebody to come here and say, you know what? 
I want I want enough money to take the subject money off the table at home. However, I will prioritize a type rating in that airplane or a a commercial helicopter rating over taking more money. And we get a double whammy there, right? It's financially efficient for them to choose to educate themselves. They do get educated. They do their job better. And the culture and the connection to the mission is drastically elevated because they can see themselves flying away in the future. It, it is an insignificant amount of money compared to the returns that we get when we have our workforce and double our output. Kyle, you know, you're also a test pilot among your other skills, athletic, intellectual, and otherwise. How does that actually help? Because you fly the ALEA all the time, or at least regularly enough, right? You're at the airfield now. How does that help produce a better airplane when the president and CEO and the founder is flying the airplane? Well, so first of all, there's the obvious thing, which is a connection to the problems and the solutions to the airplane. And every time we go out to test fly, we never say, let's go have a successful test. We say, let's go expose the issues. Um, We've established a certain level of safety and risk, and we say we're going to go expose the issues from here forward. It becomes very clear when you're in the pilot seat. It's inspiring to the team. I love to do it. It allows me to speak intelligently to people like yourselves and customers and the FAA about you you have to respect the detriments of any airplane. Not every airplane is a fighter jet or a large cargo aircraft. They're somewhere in between on a point design. Respect the detriments. Here's the things that can do. Here are the things that can't do. And you're not translating that from somebody else. So it's a direct connection to the airplane. As far as like, I would say the biggest non-obvious benefit is mapping a product vision for the future. Sitting in the cockpit from day one with Ava and then through the various iterations of Aaliyah, which have gone through about 10 different airworthiness certificates. So different motors, batteries, tail and wings, control services. You see two aircraft flying, but there's like very little of the first aircraft by now. Flying with the aircraft, each of those iterations informs a converging opinion on how to develop the next product. And Bert Rattan, one of my idols, said at one point, he said, what's your favorite aircraft you've ever made? And he bluntly responded, my next aircraft. And that resonates with me because I have such a good connection to the aircraft and the test team. And the criticism was that the best use of your time and all that kind of stuff. And I say, absolutely it is but I spend an equal amount of time with the supply chain team and the manufacturing team and the engineering team and the sales team and the finance team getting deep into it. It's just my nature. It's the only way I know how to lead and be a part of a business is to be involved and not to be sitting in a corner office uh, pointing directions and saying which hill to take. It's to get out there and, and run up the hill right at the front. And that's part of the reason that I, I, I think flying Aaliyah makes sense. Finally, we've talked about the military market particularly, but how big do your folks see the market being both military and civil for electrified aircraft? And how much of that do you realistically think can come to beta? Yeah, it's a great question. And its spread is tenfold. We have never taken a total addressable market and a market share approach to what we can achieve in terms of market. I can tell you that we have a backlog of over 600 aircraft right now with almost 2,000 in a qualified pipeline. And we haven't really leaned into a sales force yet. We have incoming sales opportunities. The civil market is ready for a product that costs less and is sustainable. The military market, I would say, from a technological standpoint, is ahead of the civil market, but from a clarity on how big it's going to be is behind the civil market. 
we expect this Marines opportunity to be measured between two and $4 billion of airplane sales and probably twice that in ongoing aftermarket sales. That's a great example. And I would double that for the army based on my intel. Now, these are not numbers that the Marines or the army has ever given us. We have to justify our investment in this with some type of internal opinion, forecasting and feel. And that's all that is right now, just to be clear. But that's a meaningful damn market as an entry point with a first product. And we have multiple products, larger aircraft, smaller aircraft, unmanned aircraft, hybrid aircraft, that are all a derivative of our first development, consuming the same motors, same batteries, same flight controls, and maybe a slightly different structure. So take that market and apply it to n number of variants. We've got about a minute left, and I want to ask you a quick capital question, right? I mean, there is both a lot of capital available, but also there's less dumb money that's sloshing around. I'm never saying that you benefited from dumb money. What does the capital situation look like for you guys, right? If you've got a good idea, can you get the money to support it? So the answer is yes. We were very specific about the equity capital we took from TPG and Fidelity and Amazon and Stone, uh, Chuck Davis and John Abley. These are sophisticated, thoughtful, long-term investors. We didn't run after every opportunity. And trust me, we had many opportunities to take money that, that was less sophisticated. Just this last year, we recognized exactly what you just outlined, which is capital is becoming uh, quite a bit tighter and people are skeptical about this type of technology investment. We worked with the Import-Export Bank of America and we got $169 million financing for our production facilities. So we nicely complemented our equity capital with debt capital at phenomenal rates that are aligned with the, the U.S. interests. And on top of that, it went into a very rigorous diligence process, way more rigorous than equity markets. And it was okay that it took nine months of diligence to get to the point of getting that financing. That in turn gives us the assets and objective evidence to go to a different form of capital, which is not the speculative venture investors, but the more tried growth investors that understand that their capital is not going to see if the business works, it's to expand the business. And when you come to our facilities here, see our tooling and our production line, which is now online, people look at it and they say, geez, I'm not investing in a speculative thing. I'm investing in growing this thing that actually works. I can go fly it. I see there's customers. So in our case specifically, capital for this next phase of growth actually hasn't been that hard to come by. And basically, this is the best of virtuous cycles, isn't it? Where the massive size of the commercial market can actually drive a very important military outcome that likely wouldn't have worked the other way around. Yeah, it, that's right. It's unique as compared to like munitions and other things. In this case, because there's applications in civil and military, it's almost as if the civil is funding the military development um, as a way, as opposed to the other way around, or at least they're highly resonant. And that's allowed us to bring a lot of money to the military development. Kyle Clark of Beta Technologies, we'd love to come visit you in Vermont. By the way, why Vermont? I love it here. I, I was born here. Um, smart people, wonderful, uh, wonderful state, a huge amount of support locally. And ironically, there's a little nest of power electronics and controls expertise around the IBM's global foundries, my former companies here, and the 700 people that work here now are rooted in this nucleus of expertise around power electronics controls. And it's a little secret that I shouldn't have told. 
<laughs> Terrific. Well, we won't share that with anybody except the 50,000 folks on the other end of this broadcast. Thanks so much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. It was fun. And and Kyle, before we go, on behalf of uh, JJ and me and the whole Defense and Aerospace team, our deepest condolences on the loss uh, of your teammate. Well, thank you. Uh, Lockie and Cassidy and Isaac and Emma were wonderful engineers and, uh, and and hardworking young MIT grads in two cases. And it's a loss for everyone. And I think it is important to note that he was in a conventional amateur built uh, experimental airplane uh, that had really nothing to do with beta. Um, and, and I think we're going to try and make the best of it to uh, to, in his memory, continue to develop uh, safer and, um, and more reliable aircraft. We'll be back next week.